What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, November 14th. Today, even more Democratic candidates for president. The Trump administration's strategy that led to a crisis at the border. And writing against stereotype. It's an amazing development. We've had nine candidates who have dropped out so far. And now we have at least two new candidates getting in. At a time when we're only three months away from this whole thing kicking off with the Iowa caucuses. My name is Matt Weiser. I'm a national political reporter at The Washington Post. On Thursday, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick announced that he is running for president. And just last week, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg started making plans to run as well. Every candidate getting in now has a strategic disadvantage. The one advantage that they see is a field that still feels a little bit unsettled and like things can happen at any moment and can happen quickly that can change the contours of the race. So who are these two candidates who are thinking of running right now? So we have Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, who as of today is in officially. He's registered in the New Hampshire primary. He's announced that he's getting into the race formally. Then we have Mike Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, um, who is starting to get registered in certain states, Alabama and Arkansas and Michigan. You know, he's starting to get on ballots. He's not formally announced his campaign quite yet. This feels to me like when I was in high school and I would spend weeks and weeks studying for a test and then show up to my math class and there would be someone who just like cracked open the book half an hour before and also expecting to ace this test. And it's frustrating for the candidates who've been studying for months and, you know, have been doing their homework every night and doing everything that you're expected to do to see candidates all of a sudden who have done uh, None of that, really. I mean, Deval Patrick, as of a couple of days ago, had no campaign staff. He is starting to put a skeletal staff together, but it very much feels like a duct tape sort of operation at this stage, kind of at the last minute. So then what did Patrick say about why he's running? So he's given a couple of interviews and he's talked a little bit about sort of vague allusions to Joe Biden as this candidate of nostalgia. Let's just get rid, if you will, of the incumbent president. We can go back to doing what we used to do. 
also vague comments about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders being sort of candidates of, of uh, my way or the highway. And neither of those, it seems to me, uh, seizes the moment to pull the nation together and bring some humility that, frankly, we have. But then there are other people. There's Pete Buttigieg, there's Cory Booker, there's right. Kamala Harris. It's not like there is an absence of choices here. If you want an uplifting uniter, you have Cory Booker. If you want a governor, you have Steve Bullock. If you want a moderate, you have Pete Buttigieg, you have Joe Biden. So it's not as if Deval Patrick is fulfilling something unique in such a wide field. I think there still seems to be that sort of absence of somebody that's truly caught fire in the race. Uh, and so I think that's what these new entries are indicating that there may be time to have a spark that somebody lights. The problem is that they don't have kindling yet to like create that spark. Uh, Barack Obama had a spark, you know, but he has spent months creating the groundwork for that spark to to take off in Iowa. Deval Patrick has done none of that. So I, I think that that's the challenge for these candidates. And what does Governor Patrick think that his particular spark is? Like, why does he think that people would all of a sudden be like, oh, yes, this is my candidate? I think there's been sort of throughout his career comparisons to Barack Obama with him. Both have ties to the south side of Chicago. They both are very good orators. And they share some of the same political advisors in their past. So I think that he sees this moment as one where candidates are not unifying the country. It's sort of been a divisive primary. It's a divisive moment in the country. The energy in the party right now is on the left. Uh, and so there's a lot of energy around Elizabeth Warren and around Bernie Sanders that's creating a little bit of divisions in the party. So he's attempting to come in and try to have some sort of unifying, at least rhetoric. I think some in the party will argue that it is all rhetoric, you know, and, and he's not speaking to that sort of energy that does exist and that we're seeing Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders tap into. So it's almost like he wants to be a better messenger of the Biden sort of aspect of the party, where there's been a little bit of frustration that Joe Biden, uh, you know, lacks a little bit of the energy and the ability to channel what moderate Democrats, frankly, corporate Democrats, you know, the Wall Street Democrats, the sort of the Clinton era, the Democratic Party wanting to channel that. But I wonder how you think Patrick's legacy as governor of Massachusetts will actually play, because I think that Similar to Joe Biden, yes, he has this reputation as a beloved, somewhat moderate Democrat, but I think that there are parts of that that might not wear as well now as it did five or ten years ago. The party is a completely different party right now than it was, you know, even a year or two ago, much less the last time Deval Patrick was on a ballot, which was 2010. He's not been engaged as much in the modern Democratic Party, which has shifted quite rapidly. And so he does have a lot of challenges, I think. And and quite frankly, his introductory video mentioned very little about his time as Massachusetts governor. Hi, everyone. I'm Deval Patrick. I used to be governor of Massachusetts, but that's not where I started. I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I lived there with my grandparents, my mother and sister, and our grandparents' two-bedroom tenement, some of that time on welfare. I went to big, broken, overcrowded public schools. And still, my grandmother used to tell us we were not poor, just broke. Because broke, she said, is temporary. 
through the love and support of family. Which was uh, kind of striking. It was all almost biographical. An uplifting life story, to be sure, but not one that is touting his record as Massachusetts governor, which, as you point out, is mixed. Not to mention the fact that after he left the governor's office, he went to Bain Capital, which most Democrats, uh, you know, have a bad taste of because it was the primary argument against Mitt Romney in 2012 because he founded Bain Capital. So he has had all these corporate ties throughout his career, but he's launching his campaign out of Bain Capital. I mean, he resigned as of yesterday to to launch this campaign. So I think that's going to be a major point of emphasis for his opponents and a test for how adamant the Democratic Party is about those kind of ties, which so far they have been quite adamant, as indicated by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in their campaigns. And I wonder if that is part of the reason why someone like Governor Patrick thinks that it is possible for them to be a big player in this race because because he has access to money or to people with money. And the, the same would probably go for Michael Bloomberg. He has a lot of money, knows people with a lot of money, and that they're thinking that getting those big donors that have been kind of issued by other candidates is their way to quickly become a major player. And it will be a test, I think, for how angry the others in the party are about that style of politics. I think Deval Patrick will probably have a super PAC. He's starting with zero money. And so he's going to have to raise lots and lots of money from, you know, lots and lots of interests. And so it's a test of sort of what money can do and how money can move people or not move people. I think a lot of people in the race are a little bit intimidated by the potential amount of money that Mike Bloomberg himself will just pour into very expensive Super Tuesday states that happen later in the calendar. But Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, are, are all of their money is coming from grassroots networks. They're not doing traditional fundraisers, and they're leading in the amount of money that they're raising because there's an appetite for that style of campaigning. So I think Deval Patrick will, will sort of test you know, whether he can raise money and who he raises money from. And Mike Bloomberg tests sort of how much money can influence modern-day democratic politics. So at least for now, neither of these candidates are going to be in the democratic presidential debates because they're dependent on both fundraising and poll numbers. That might change in the future, but I'm wondering what you think about the fact that Neither of them have been on any of the debate stages so far. People haven't had a chance to see them. And whether that is another hurdle that they'll have to deal with in the course of this campaign. The way that the DNC has set up the debate qualifications is is that it's rewarded candidates who can raise money from lots of different donors or who can make a splash in the polls and can demonstrate some strength. Deval Patrick and Mike Bloomberg come in with zero donors. So the donor thresholds have increased over time to now it's 165,000 unique donors. So to accomplish that is quite difficult, I think, for either one of them. Tom Steyer is another billionaire who has been able to raise money from donors by pouring a lot of money into Facebook ads. So you could see Mike Bloomberg being able to do something similar, um, but he also has to register in the polls. And and now the national polling threshold is uh, 5%. So he, he needs to sort of make a dent in, in polling. So the question is, where do they make an impact and where do they make a splash? And 
Mike Bloomberg is betting on making a splash on Super Tuesday. It's a different strategy. It's a strategy that others have tried and failed at doing and, and not competing in the early primary states. Deval Patrick needs national media exposure in order to drive up his polling numbers and get the donations. And so, you know, it's up to him to sort of try to prove that he's worthy of, of coverage and, and to sort of do things that excite people in a, in a, in a unique way. And so whether he can do that is, is kind of yet to be seen. Matt Visor is a political reporter for The Post. So this year, the U.S. saw an unprecedented number of children crossing the border alone who came largely from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, fleeing gang violence and and things like that, according to them. Nina Satija is an investigative reporter for The Post. And for years now, the government has struggled with how to handle this. Our message absolutely is don't send your children unaccompanied on trains or through a bunch of smugglers. We don't even know how many of these kids don't make it. Our plan will change the law to stop the flood of child smuggling and to humanely reunite unaccompanied children with their families back home and rapidly, soon as possible. This year, there was a huge backup at the border. And the fact that there was this backup meant that there were so many kids who were stuck in detention centers in conditions that were pretty horrible. Exactly. You saw these really heart-wrenching images of kids sleeping head to toe with those mylar blankets, those space blankets on concrete floors, essentially behind cages, caged cells. They were getting stuck in these really horrible conditions in border patrol stations for weeks on end in some cases. When officials in the administration would comment on these conditions, what we heard again and again was that the system was simply overwhelmed. But what Nina has found is that this backup, it was actually something that the Trump administration predicted and chose not to stop. Our reporting shows that the Trump administration and officials at the highest levels knew that something like this could happen as a result of some policies that they put in place back in April of 2018 and policies that they were actually discussing for at least a year before that. We've reviewed documents that say we're trying to put this policy in place and it will strain bed capacity. So tell me about what those actual changes were that were put in place shortly after President Trump came into office. So the changes that started to be discussed were ways of dealing with a program called the UAC program, which stands for Unaccompanied Alien Children Program. And these are the children that cross the border alone every year, mostly to come live with relatives or parents who are already in the U.S. A lot of people in the Trump administration and a lot of immigration hardliners from the Obama administration felt that this was the wrong approach to simply apprehend children at the border, put them in shelters, and then release them to relatives in the U.S. who are called sponsors. They were just saying, well, you're just incentivizing people to get kids smuggled into the U.S. That's dangerous for the kids and for child welfare. And so what was their solution to how to fix that? So their solution was to change how they dealt with sponsors of these unaccompanied children. The way it had worked in the past was 
the Health and Human Services Department vetted these sponsors. So it would take kids into custody in shelters. And while the kids stayed in shelters, HHS officials would make sure that the adults they wanted to live with in the U.S. would provide them with a safe environment. A lot of these sponsors were probably undocumented themselves, but that wasn't HHS's concern. They just wanted to make sure that these kids were going to a safe environment. What changed when the Trump administration came in was they announced this memorandum of agreement between Health and Human Services and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So what would happen now is HHS would take custody of these kids, find out about their sponsors, and in the course of vetting them, share that information with ICE. ICE could use that information if it wanted to, to take immigration enforcement action against those sponsors and potentially deport them. And this was kind of an unprecedented level of cooperation between these two agencies, and it added a whole new layer to the vetting of sponsors. So this agreement, it was between the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Homeland Security, right? which are two departments with two very different purviews, right? HHS is basically in charge of keeping kids safe. Right. DHS is in charge of immigration enforcement. Right. Those are two very different goals. And this was a situation where they created an agreement that it seems might have required some compromises on those goals. That's absolutely right. And that's what a lot of people at Health and Human Services were upset about. You know, again, Homeland Security would say they also care about child safety, but from the perspective of not letting them come across in the first place or stopping them from coming across in the first place. So it was definitely about two agencies sort of grappling with fundamentally different goals, with some agreeing that that law enforcement goal was something that HHS could start to have or start to help with. So the memorandum of agreement between these two agencies was formally signed in April of 2018, only a couple weeks after the family separation policy was also announced. So this was all happening at the same time. And what they decided to do in this new policy was not only share information, but also vet a lot more people. Don't just vet the sponsor or the parent of a child that came over from Guatemala, let's say. We're going to vet all of the adults living in that person's household. So it could be, you know, an aunt and an uncle living there. It could be, you know, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a husband or wife. All of those people would also have to get vetted, and that would include fingerprinting. This was new. This had not been going on in the past. So what ended up happening was you had officials that had to suddenly fingerprint, you know, multiple times more people than they did before. And so you had people waiting weeks, sometimes months, to get their fingerprinting results back. And that is a huge part of what caused this backlog. I actually spoke to one HHS official who said, That is the reason that the notorious tent city for children, if you remember Tornillo. This tent city is only built because this administration decided to impose a crisis by taking kids away from their parents. And that's the reason, according to this HHS official that I spoke to, that Tornillo had to open. It wasn't because they were separating families. It was because this backlog was starting to happen already of children waiting for those sponsors to be fingerprinted and waiting for all that vetting to happen. And what do Trump administration officials say about this reporting that basically shows that officials within the administration who were making these changes knew what the consequences would be ahead of time and that they weren't just thinking about it from the perspective of protecting the children who had come over the border, but from trying to deter other people from trying to come over the border? Trump's administration continues to argue that what happened this summer is because of a lack of funding, 
and because of illegal immigration in general and an over a soaring number of kids coming across the border. They do say, and, and what they've told us is essentially, we supported this memorandum of agreement and we pushed for it because we wanted to deter illegal immigration, but we also cared about child safety. And their argument continues to be that those are one and the same, that if we can stop children from coming over, it will keep them safer because they won't be smuggled by human trafficking organization. But is there any evidence that that is actually true? That Did that actually make kids more safe? Well, according to the Department of Health and Human Services uh, documents that we reviewed and documents they've released, it did not make children safer from their perspective. Health and Human Services actually said, you know what, it turns out the fingerprints don't give us any more information than all the other background checks we'd already been doing are giving us. So where does this all stand right now? So Health and Human Services has basically quietly taken steps over a period of several months to roll back this policy change as much as possible to almost rescind or come close to rescinding that agreement between HHS and DHS. And so they took what they called operational directives, that's how they referred to them, to quicken the release of children from shelters and from federal custody. It started in December. In December, they said, we're going to stop fingerprinting everyone else in the household. We're only going to fingerprint the sponsors. Thousands of kids get released from shelters when they do that. Then in March, they said, we're going to stop fingerprinting people who are actually the parents of these kids. We're going to keep fingerprinting everyone else that wants to take custody of them, but not the parents. Then in June, and more recently, they said we're going to stop fingerprinting grandparents and close relatives like aunts and uncles. At the same time, they also got lucky because the number of kids coming over drastically was reduced by June. But the reality is taking these policy changes were a major way to alleviate the crisis at the border, and that's what HHS has said publicly to Congress. Let me talk about discharge rates and the impact of the memorandum of agreement. Uh, Operational directives, ORR issued December, have helped to expedite, without question, the discharge of children from ORR's care. They were only necessary because, because of the memorandum of agreement. And so the question becomes, well, why was the policy there in the first place if it created so many problems? And why did it take so long to rescind it? And is there a sense of why it did take so long after we first heard about things like the tent city for children, that it wasn't immediate that these rollbacks were made so that they could start getting kids out of detention centers and shelters and into the hands of relatives? According to our reporting and the interviews that we did, HHS wanted to change the policy much earlier, but they needed White House approval to do that. And ultimately... This was the only way they could get it through politically. I mean, this is a president who has spoken openly about the idea that immigrants are trying to flood over the southern border, that the country is being inundated. So it is not out of bounds to say that President Trump and his administration would have wanted to move aggressively, even if it resulted in pretty stark outcomes for kids, to try to stop people from coming into the country. I think that's absolutely right. I want to read a statement that we got from Hogan Gidley, who's a White House spokesperson. When we asked, why did you support this policy, this agreement between DHS and HHS, despite documents indicating it could strain bed capacity and lead to a backup of children, this was the answer. No one who values child welfare and safety would argue smuggled, exploited, and unaccompanied children at the southern border should be handed over to illegal alien sponsors, that's in quotes, without reliable identity confirmation and background checks. 
The only ones responsible for crowded shelters are Democrats who want to preserve and expand loopholes used by child smugglers for purely political purposes. It reminds me kind of of what there's a journalist, Adam Serwer at The Atlantic, who talks about this idea, the cruelty is the point. Yeah. And it makes me think of that, that even if you knew that kids were going to have have to experience the trauma of being stuck in places where they shouldn't be stuck and waiting for periods that are much longer than they should have been waiting, that it was worth it because their experiences would serve as an example for other people considering coming into the country and that their trauma would be a deterrent to other people. So we asked about this and we actually asked government officials if this border backup that happened this summer was intentional in any way. Or did any, maybe not intentional, but this idea that, yes, it might happen, but that will help the deterrent effect, that people perhaps in Guatemala will be watching TV and see children in cages and say, I don't want that to happen to my child. We asked this exact question to the White House, and the response was this. These allegations are completely false and uniquely ignorant, which should be obvious, because the president's position is widely known. The most humane approach to solving the illegal immigration crisis is the safe and prompt return of illegal aliens to their home countries and, in the case of exploited minors, to their families back home. And what that tells me is that when the White House and when President Trump is thinking about deterring illegal immigration, they are thinking about sending people back. They are not thinking about children who are coming into this country potentially to seek refuge from a very dangerous situation and want to live with a relative in the U.S. That's not a part of their calculation. They feel that everyone should be sent back and they shouldn't be coming here at all. Nina Satija is an investigative reporter for The Post. Under the previous order, the Senate will proceed to executive session to resume consideration of the following nomination, which the clerk will report. Nomination, Department of Homeland Security, Chad F. Wolf of Virginia to be Undersecretary for Strategy, Policy, and Plans. On Wednesday, the Senate confirmed Chad Wolf as Undersecretary of the Department of Homeland Security. And since there's no confirmed head of the agency, Wolf is now the new acting secretary. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. And now, one more thing. Jacqueline Woodson is a celebrated author. She's won major literary awards for her books for children and young adults. The National Book Award, the Newbery Medal, the Caldecott Medal, the Coretta Scott King Award— Her latest book is for adults, and it's called Red at the Bone. It's a story about multiple generations of one Black family and what happens when a parent leaves. But what's different about this story is that it challenges a common narrative. In this case, it's the mom who decides to leave her kid behind. The main thing is I I like to write against stereotypes. The main characters of the book are two teenagers, Iris and Aubrey. 
They're dating when they find out that Iris is pregnant. And this idea of the tragic pregnant teen is one we see again and again. That sense of stolen childhood and poverty and the fact that the only teenagers that get pregnant are poor ones. All of those were messages that I feel like society kind of regurgitates into the world. And I felt like I wasn't here for it. I wanted to tell a different story. After Iris has her baby, she recognizes that becoming a mother at the age of 16 was not part of her plan. In terms of Iris getting pregnant, she's a teenage mom. So for me, it made sense that someone who uh, got pregnant at 15, had a baby at 16, changed their mind about motherhood at 17. (laughs) You know, it's just that when you think of the frontal lobes connecting, so many of us are not very well formed at that age and realize that the mistakes we made then, the things that are perceived as mistakes that can stay with us in this way that we're not prepared for. So Iris was like, I'm out. Iris goes off to college and starts a new life. And that leaves her boyfriend, Aubrey, to raise their daughter. Again, it comes back to not wanting to tell the same old story of the kind of heteronormative parenting. Also, in terms of the Black community, that sense of the absentee dad. I really wanted to talk about the ones who stay. I think there is a really deep bond between fathers and daughters that doesn't get written about as often as I'd like to see it, but also one that speaks to the narrative of Black fatherhood and what that means. And what does it mean for someone like Aubrey, who's coming from a working class, poor family and doesn't have a lot of tools, it seems, to navigate the world. And then there he is with all of the everything he needs to be this amazing father who's happy enough to just be a dad, be a family man, have his job in the mailroom and let that be enough. When so many of the messages that we get in the world is you have to aspire, quote unquote, higher, right? You have to want more than that. And that's not who he is. Jacqueline Woodson is the author of Red at the Bone. She was interviewed by Nima Rashania Patel, the deputy editor of The Lily. This book is the November pick for The Lily Lit Club. To follow along and participate, find at Lily Lit Club on Instagram. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, another day of public testimony in the House's impeachment inquiry. And comedian Jenny Slate talks about what it's like to work in entertainment with debilitating stage fright. What happened for me was that the stage fright did become impassable. Like I could not get over it and it did ruin some shows, which means that I went through them robotically and didn't have fun. And I think the key to my stand-up being elevated is not just the subject matter, but the fact that I am clearly enjoying it. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. 
visit aar.org.